and in fact, we spent the first like seven or eight minutes of the movie almost trying to um, frustrate the viewer. But it, it was this idea that we almost force you to like um, tune out a little bit, that, that there's stuff going on. You don't know who or what to grab. And that, you know, may, maybe, and this is the theory, maybe that might help you um, have a sense of apathy actually to the movie. And then into that world, we introduce this um, you know, gravitational force. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In this episode, a teacher in a Mexican border town tries to move his students towards success in director Christopher Zala's drama, Radical. The film tells the story of Sergio Juarez, a sixth grade teacher in a Mexican border town full of neglect, corruption, and violence. Saddled with the worst performing students, he tries a radical new method to unlock his class's curiosity, potential, and maybe even their genius. In addition to Radical, Zala's other directorial credits include the feature Blood of My Blood, the movie for television Beautiful and Twisted, and episodes of the series Law and Order. Following a screening of the film at the DGA Theater in New York, Zala spoke with director Braden King about filming Radical. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. I think before we start, I just wanted to um, both commend you and thank you for a truly stunning film. Um, you know, the, the yeah, thank you. Uh, writing, the direction, the performances, um, almost every, you know, every element of the film really took my breath away. And, it, and I think it sort of um, fulfills one of the, in my view, one of the primary functions of cinema in terms of allowing us to inhabit an unfamiliar world mm. authentically, mm. Um, meet its, uh, meet the people that live there. And, and for me personally, kind of is that magical experience of expanding my own sense of the broader world that we all live in. Mm -hmm. And um, so again, just a, a remarkable accomplishment. Thank you. <laughs> um, while we were, uh, at the risk of, of getting both of us in a tiny bit of trouble while we were standing up there waiting to come down here, you were telling me a story about uh, uh, someone who might have done this Q&A and who was, uh, the film was partially dedicated to. And I think it's worth, um, you know, letting the audience in on that. Yeah. So, so I was just telling Braden, it, we, we sort of got in touch with each other last minute because I was trying originally uh, to have this Q&A moderated, not that you're not amazing, but uh, by my, my professor in film school, a guy named Nicholas Preferis, who, um, you know, was that person for me who just sort of recognized me, um, that I had potential, um, that I had talent and, you know, sort of empowered me to, to believe it and, and exploit it. And, um, and he, he would always say, you know, oh, I'm a failure, but you know, you're, you're going to go on. And, and so while we were shooting the movie, I, you know, sent him a, a picture with like a huge crane and everything. And, um, uh, you know, I told him I'm, I'm, I'm here because of you, but, but right at that moment, sight and sound had come out with their new top hundred list. 
And he suddenly was number 55 <laughs> on the list with a movie that he actually co-directed uh, with Barbara Loden called Wanda. He was um, Ilya Kazan's DP um, for, for the latter part of Kazan's career. Um, so, yeah, the movie is, is in, in part, um, you know, an homage to my teacher, uh, to that teacher. And so, uh, but, but he's not an active DGA member, so he can't uh, do, do the Q&A. Um, I mean, it actually struck me in the, in the, as I was watching the kind of maybe first third of the film, <clears throat> and as we're getting to know Sergio and the way he's teaching the class, there's a meta element almost. I kept thinking of I, it, to myself that this could almost be a, 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 a directing primer. I mean, in terms of in, in, the, in the way he's talking to the class, mm. it struck me as um, incredibly inspirational for in terms of thinking of iconoclastic in different ways of approaching filmmaking itself. Hmm. Why does it all have to be this way? Are there rules we have to follow? Is there another way into this yeah. that's more experiential and human, and, yeah. you know, uh, based in relationships? So it, I, I think his spirit is there. Yeah. Well, yeah. And he's, you know, he was, he was so clear about actually the word clarity, like clarity, clarity. Um, and actually that's always where he had the biggest problem with me because I would veer away from making it so strongly this person's movie or, you know, um, that kind of thing. Um, but this was really a exercise for me and, and, and I just really wanted to see where I could go with emotion. I really wanted to try and sort of stretch the rubber band of, of that range and that experience. And I, and I thought that, um, the headline of the story is, you know, the, the magazine article, the cover of the magazine article, the result, the, these incredible results that he achieved in this one year. Um, but I, but I thought that the, the, the interesting dramatic question for me that I wanted to answer was how, and, and what if we don't make the movie about that result? What in fact, if we put that after the movie, like that's beside the point, uh, it's about what was required to make that happen. Um, and, and so I thought that was probably, and I think I, it was confirmed for me through the, the making of the film. And I actually got to know and sit down for a long time. He was on the set with us for several weeks, the real Sergio. Um, but which was, Precisely what my teacher did with me, which is recognize me, uh, but that fundamentally it was a it was um, this journey of going from a kind of closed off, apathetic mindset, a, a lack of possibility that that would then had that opened up, and and so filmically, I felt like I really want us to go on the journey of a child, and I want us to be the child. And so I was sort of dogged about that. Like the camera is never higher than three and a half feet high or kid, kid height. You know, the ongoing joke on set was that our, our visual inspiration was Charlie Brown. So adults are cut off here. Um, and in fact, we spent the first like seven or eight minutes of the movie almost trying to um, frustrate the viewer. But it, it was this idea that we almost forced you to like, um, tune out a little bit that, that there's stuff going on. You don't know who or what to grab and that, you know, may, maybe, and this is the theory, maybe that might help you, um, have a sense of apathy actually to the movie. And then into that world, we introduce this, um, you know, gravitational force, this like center of, um, and, and just the, the one other thing I'll say about the, the Melvin crafts that the Walter Murch version of, uh, Touch of Evil, which is actually a border movie, um, was just super, super inspirational for me. And it was this like incredible example of 
the marriage of like truly oppositional film language within the same over overall piece of work and and the way in which he sets it up right at the beginning of the movie which is to say you know he introduces a vocabulary this is this is the language i'm going to speak and then the, and then through the movie he he speaks it that to me is the joy of film of filmmaking is that we get to do that we get to create language yeah and then speak it <laughs> i want to come back to the nuts and bolts of the making of the film in a minute but one thing i was struck by as I was prepping to talk to you tonight, um, is that even though we just met during the credit roll, I feel a great familiarity. We have a lot in common. We've lived yeah. in a lot of different places. We've made films in very uh, difficult locations. Um, and I wanted to explore some of your thoughts on it. It seems to me that you have a very you've lived a very interesting life that intertwines with filmmaking and, and some fairly singular and interesting ways. And I think that that dovetails with a little bit of the story of how this film came together over mm -hmm. so many years, starting with, it has seeds in your first film, yeah. Padre Nuestro, Sangre de Masangre, alternate title. Um, but I, I, I'm very curious about your perspective on the life you've lived and how that Inter interacts with the filmmaking you've done and maybe specifically how some of that has maybe led to the film we just saw. Yeah. I mean, I would say uh, in, the, in the broadest scope, um, I did move around a lot. I went to a ton of different schools in a bunch of different countries growing up. I did have a very adventurous kind of life throughout. Um, we, we geeked out over commercial salmon fishing in Alaska, or that's what I did for nine years. And um, your, one of your first things was we started talking about the deadliest catch. And, um, um, but I think the, the result of that was that I, I've always or frequently been, um, been an outsider in a place. And so I, I look through it, uh, I look at places kind of always as a, as, a, as a visitor on one level, but as somebody who's trying not to, who's trying to, um, mesh with that place or get to know it. Um, and I think that's just helped my powers of observation and specifically, you know, going into a place where I don't necessarily speak the language, at least from the beginning is it's, you know, it's a much more visually and just sort of orally engaged with the place. Um, I, I think that was probably helpful, but, but in, in, in the context of this story specifically, yeah, I, I um, it, it's actually the, the first movie came about out of 9-11 when I was living in New York and I lived downtown and I woke up to the, the, the planes crashing and falling and I, and I went down there uh, for like a day and a half and just tried to, you know, I dug through the rubble and, and um, very early on, on my way down, we had to get through some checkpoints and, you know, we lied and all kinds of stuff to get down there. And um, I met a Mexican kid who was just doing the same thing I was. And he, he was just, just off the boat. Like he, he didn't speak any English at all. And so I sort of translated for him. And I just remember at the end of the day, uh, the, the second day when I was leaving and I was just like, there's, I'm, this is pointless. Like, I'm not going to help anybody here. This is done. Like there's nobody survived this thing. You, you just sort of lived through it. And he was on the bucket brigade on the pile where, you know, they'd find a body or a part and then they would send this human chain and, and, and I just remember looking at him and thinking, like I walked away, I was just so crying so much th those days. I was just like, I wanted to make a movie about, about my city. And there was this, a character I had been working on, which was this miserly character who was undocumented. And 
um, um, because of that, couldn't get a bank account, like that kind of thing. And so had all of his 20 years of, of effort here sort of saved up in the shape of a big pile of paper money. And um, it was just this great image for me. And there was something about that moment where the story formed completely in my mind. And that became Padre Nuestro Sangre Mi Sangre, which we eventually took to Sundance. But in the casting, the biggest movie star in the history of Mexico got a hold of the script after it had already been cast and said, I wanna, I wanna be in this. I wanna start doing drama. I wanna start um, you know, even moving into the States. Um, give me a part. And I was like, it's cast. And he's like, anything. So we give him this tiny little part. I think we don't even credit, I don't think we even credit him in the movie. And this tiny little part in the back of the kitchen and he's the biggest, you know, he's Elvis in, in Mexico. And, um, and then that movie went on to win the Grand Jury Prize at Sundance 2007. And he said, someday I'm going to find a drama because he's a comic uh, and I'm going to call you. And, and the big joke is it just took him 15 years. Uh, and they did, he called me with, with this project. He's now um, super successful. He's got his own studio with Ben O'Dell, who I went to film school with, um, uh, and who produced that first movie. They, they sent me this. So it was sort of the whole thing coming for, full circle. And, and when they sent it to me, by that time I had been living in Guatemala for four or five years. It's, it's been eight. Um, so yeah, I just kind of am all over the place. And it dovetailed subject wise too, with some of the things that yeah, yeah. My, I was having, my son was becoming of school age and in Guatemala public school ends at sixth grade. And so if you want to go beyond sixth grade, you need to have some kind of private scholarship, uh, support, financing, something. And so, but the mentality is like, if you know you're done with school at sixth grade, you start checking out in like fourth grade, third grade, what's the point of it all? Um, if I'm going to swing a hammer for the rest of my life or, you know, uh, whatever it might be, um, what's any of this useful for? Um, and, and it was, it, it, this, but so the schools were really about sort of child control um, and I, and I, I grew up in a bunch of different, I'm going to a bunch of different schools, but that's kind of my experience of school. It was more about discipline, stay in line, raise your hand. Um, and, and, and so as I had my own child going into school and he had some, some, some learning difficulties already, um, I was just really keen on understanding, well, how did this, how did this guy do this and how did he make this work? And so it became a kind of a personal investigation for me that I just kind of rolled into the work. Um, Eugenio's performance is astounding to me. Talk a little bit about this transition from comedy to drama, how you worked with him, what the, it may not be apparent to people that don't know the level of his stardom in Mexico, but the risk he was taking doing something like this, all of those elements. Yeah, we, we had to be very under wraps that he was in the movie because we would have ground to a halt. Uh, last week I went into a restaurant with him in Morelia for a film festival in, in Mexico and somebody saw us when we went into the theater and when we came out there were a thousand people waiting outside the, the uh, not the theater, the, the restaurant. Uh, just insane. The, when we showed up for the premiere it was maybe 10,000 people um, and just screaming and, and he goes and like tries to take a selfie with every single one of them. Like it's who he is. Um, but... but um, yeah, his, his history there is this beloved comedian. It's hard to describe the equivalent. Um, and, and in popular, in, in, in sort of the popular Mexican context and audience, they're really into this kind of very broad comedy. And he's just this beloved, I, I mean, the kids will, will come up to him and imitate characters he's done, you know, voices of characters. He does a lot of like voice stuff. And, 
but the flip side of that is he's not taken very seriously. And so he's also has this huge challenge to, or, or sort of kind of typecasting um, that he's having to combat um, in terms of doing this kind of thing. And so um, he and, and Ben, his producing partner, my former classmate, have been like, we're sort of very carefully just sort of plotting this like little transitions poco a poco to get him to be able to do a movie like this. And then the, he was in CODA. Uh, he was the music teacher in CODA two years ago. And, and they felt like that was now the time once that landed to, to do this project, which they were, by that point, I was writing it. So, um, and so, it, uh, but, but with working him specifically, what I saw is that he had never yet broken out of, and even in CODA, he's got this long hair and flings it around. And there's just, there was something, a little caricature about him always. And, and, and in fact, and we can now talk about this because it's all fun and games. We're, we're through it. But it was really difficult. And Ben, the producer, even talked to me about it. And he's like, you're going to have a problem with his hair. And we had the three days of like hair until 2 o'clock in the morning. And, and, I said, and, and so my argument to him, I told him straight out, I think, you're, I think the hair is a, is a disguise. I think it's a costume and I think you're hiding behind it and I don't, I'm going to take it away from you. I'm not going to let you have it for you. And, and, and the conversation and the way I, the way I got to him was, you know how Sergio like had a nervous breakdown and he's just like flying by the seat of his pants and he finds this crazy thing online, decides to wing it. I'm going to try this. Like he had to be terrified. Like imagine how he felt like that's how you're going to feel. Because <laughs> I'm not going to let you do anything with your hair. And you're like, I love it. I love it. It's so good. Okay. But what if I just, you know, no, 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 no. And finally, I get a phone call at 2 a.m. the night before we're sp supposed to shoot. And the, and the last iteration was the real Sergio likes to put a lot of gel in his hair. So he had this very cl close crap jelly thing when he went upstairs. And I was like, all right, well, let's just, you know, let's talk about it tomorrow. And I got home and there was a message. And the Chris, I just got to my, my room and I looked at myself in the mirror. And I look fucking ridiculous. <laughs> so, okay, I'm going to do, do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it your way. Um, and I think that did um, work. It worked to let him. It was also something very different for him to just not have any of those um, security blankets, really, uh, that I think actually kind of cut him loose and set him free a little bit to, to just be, uh, to act differently, to be honest. It reminds me, <clears throat> one of the more powerful moments for me early in, early in the film is when he showed the kids that it was acceptable to say, I don't know. Yeah. Which is something that's always felt very important to me as a director. Yeah. Like being able to just say, I don't know. And yeah. we're going to work it out and we're going to figure it out. And we're going to get Did there. you do that in the beginning of your career or after like third or fourth or fifth project? Did you do like right in the beginning? How'd you feel about, I don't know in the very beginning. I, I think, feel like kind of, it's a little harder to get away with. That. I had a little bit of an, of a, I feel like an advantage in that I came from, um, uh, I, have, I have a deep background in playing music and okay. there was a lot of collaboration and, yeah. and a lot of working things out. And I think there was a, a sense that <clears throat> we may not know exactly where this is going to go, but we'll figure it out by the time we get there. And that, that was always extremely valuable to me when I started, um, directing. Yeah. But I think it's um, I think about surfing a lot and I think about the, you know, having to be present and respond to what's happening here now, uh, which I think I don't know helps out a lot with if you can get comfortable with it. Yeah. Um, I wanted to uh, I'm, I'm fascinated by the students 
and and if you could tell us a little bit about the casting process i'm very curious about how many if they're all actors if there's some non-actors in there um you know what that was like putting that very large ensemble of kids together yeah i mean i, I think i always felt like the movie would live or die with them um obviously it's the huge challenge it's like you know directing like rule number one and number two are no no animals no kids um, and to have a whole room full of them or sometimes a whole school full of them was daunting to say the least. Um, and it even, it even informed a little bit of the, the, the approach in the classrooms, which I knew I was going to have a much more frenetic camera, more, um, kind of discontinuity of editing, a, a different pace of editing, which we can talk about later. But, um, but part of that was also like, I'm going to have a kid with his finger up his nose in the background of every other shot. And I'm gonna, I need to create a style that lets me, um, you know, plausibly cut around that, have these kind of jumps. Um, but they were, they were phenomenal. So the, the kids, none of the kids that are really featured in the movie had ever acted before. Um, and, um, the, the, the only ones that had were the Boyd Donovan who raised his hand side, but I still want to learn about boats and he and his audition. And, th and this gives you a sense of just what we were, the environment we were in. But in his audition, the first thing we did with every kid was just interview them and get them comfortable and have a conversation. And, uh, and he starts telling the story of, of having to get acting jobs during the pandemic when his family lost their work. And if he didn't get acting jobs, they were going to get kicked out of their house and like be on the streets. And he just starts crying as he's telling the story. And he's just like literally kills you, you know? And it's like, I got to find a part for that kid. Um, but he was very young and so I, I, he wasn't going to sort of be Nico, which is who we auditioned for. Um, and then the, the, actually the kid who I would call like the metaphorical character, the kid with the bare feet that pushes the wheelchair. Um, he was like a little Marlon Brando, like show up on set and like, can somebody get me a water? You know, um, um, he was a professional actor, uh, but just had this great kind of quality, this look. Um, but, but the other ones weren't, and it was really, really, really a trial to find them. And I, I'm just, I, I'm, I'm, I had the pleasure, the fortune, good fortune of interviewing Milos Forman at Columbia, which is, he sort of rejiggered the apartment, uh, the department in the, I guess, late seventies, early eighties and made it very much this, like, it's about the auteur, the role of the producer is to identify the vision, support the vision. Um, and, and I got to interview him for this little masterclass we recorded and I asked him about casting and, um, or maybe, I did, maybe it was off screen, but, but I was curious and, um, he said, you know, 95% of, or I asked him about directing actors and he said, 95% of directing actors is casting. And I, I kind of completely agree. It's like f just the process of casting. And he, he even like, he told me about, um, um, working with Courtney Love and did like seven callbacks. And he's like, they'll do anything for you when they're auditioning. And so that's when you get all your work done on the character as you build it all in, you keep calling them back and you ask them to do this and that. They're, they don't, they don't yet own the character. <laughs> you just like, when you're in full, you'll use it. Uh, that kind of thing. Right. But, but with the kids, um, we did, we did ultimately find them, but it's, it's very interesting. I was, uh, the only Oscar winner in this movie is the sound designer. He's an Yari sound designer, Martin Hernandez. 
and he sound design is fantastic. He, well, he's really good. <laughs> uh, but but I did this movie was like I really wanted to work on sound. I mean, from the begin from from conception, sound and and color. Actually, for the first time, I really started playing with color, uh, really more intentionally. But um, um, uh, he the the uh, uh, composers it kept coming up over and over again when people would say Chris thank you for casting kids that look like this because they don't do that in Mexico. There's a, there's a colorism. There's this notion of like who, what should be on screen. Um, and I just wasn't, first of all, it wasn't, I, I looked, you know, we did tons of research. we interviewed everybody. It's like the kids look like this. They don't look like, you know, blonde hair, blue eyed Mexico city kids, you know? Um, and so like Paloma, I'd say we looked at a thousand kids easy and Paloma was in a folder, a Dropbox folder of just general also rants, but like not presented to me and I, I couldn't find her. So it's 3 a.m. in the morning and I'm just looking at every single audition, every single audition and wham, it's just like there. I woke up my wife like you, it's Paloma, it's Paloma, you know, 3 a.m. She's like, okay, okay, go back to sleep. Um, it's shocking to me that she's not a trained actress. She's yeah. And, and uh, Mia, who plays uh, Lupe, same thing. She actually came in and read for Paloma. Um, so she wasn't as hard to find, but she was a year and a half younger than everybody else. And I just, and she could do anything. But I was never going to find a boy, plausibly, of her like size and age that I felt like could stand, a Nico, that could sort of hold his water with her and have this like, this touch of, of this little, you know, romantic, romantic relationship or possibility, it was going to be a little bit different. It was going to be more like puppy love, uh, not something just a little bit further along. And, um, but she was just so amazing. I, I wanted her and actually I had to first find Nico and Paloma and then put her in a room with them to see if she could, if you could believe that she was in the same room because she's, she's younger, smaller, everything. And of course she was instantly, but there's a great story. If you want to know who Eugenio de Reyes is, we were, we did tell the three, those three kids because we were going to have to work together, who was going to start opposite them. And when we told Paloma and Nico, they instantly started crying and their parents started crying. And, and, and then the next day they were doing camera tests all in costume and everything. Cameras were running, lights were on. And I brought in Mia, who plays Lupe, to see you know, the, the chemistry between them and if she could hold her own. And um, she was, of course, and I instantly said, you've got the part. And the whole crew was there and everybody cheered and her dad cheered. And I said, and there's one more thing you have to know, but, but I'm not going to tell you. And Jennifer Paloma behind camera was like, oh, oh can, I, can I please tell her? Can I please tell her? I was like, yes, you are going to tell her. And so they walk over and, and Jennifer walks over to... to, to Mia Lupe. And she goes, okay, okay. Name a Mexican. No, she goes, she, this was, she, name an actor. And Mia said, Eugenio de Reyes. And she says, that's Sergio. <laughs> and, ah! You know, um, like that's just like, he's the first actor that comes to your lips in Mexico. Like that's how huge he is. Um, and, and so I, I guess the only other thing to talk about really, Danilo, who plays Nico, we couldn't find it all in Mexico City. So we sent scouts to the border um, and his dad was um, taping up flyers announcing the audition and came home and said, hey, maybe I'll try out for this. Wow. That's how we found him. 
So other than having to deal with Eugenio's fame and keeping that under wraps and so you didn't get surrounded, talk about some of the, what I assume had to be challenges of shooting in these locations, logistically. Yeah, I, we, we shot about an hour outside of Mexico City in a place called San Salvador de Atenco, which is the last place that there was an open armed rebellion against the government of Mexico. So it, it was a, we had to actually frequently, early on in the scouting process, when we were identifying the place, which was a doppelganger for Matamoros, which we could not shoot in for security reasons. It was just completely ruled out by everyone we talked to. Um, of course, I wanted to do it, and I was like, you can't. Um, and when everyone's telling you, no, 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 then you start to listen. Um, but we had to go early and meetings with the community. It was a very uh, mobilized, active, communal community. Um, and eventually, once they stopped thinking that we were there to steal their land, they embraced us. Uh, but it, it was, the, the conditions were very depressed. There was no uh, water available, so everyone had to have water trucked in. Um, and the landscape that you see is, is the landscape. Um, there were hundreds of, of um, feral dogs where we were shooting, and um, literally their poop would dry out in the sand, and then it was always blowing wind. And so we had this like epidemic of eye infections on set. So there are, we all had to start wearing goggles and masks when we weren't uh, rolling. Uh, it, was, it was hot. Uh, but just being an hour and a half away from home every night was also tricky. I had advocated, let's get a hotel. And I was like, there's no hotels there. Um, and just adding to the burden of the shoot that we shot Saturdays. So it was really, it was really exhausting. Uh, and then just the kids, you know, it was, it's a lot to just wrangle kids. And um, I took a lot of that on myself. Eugenia was very helpful with kind of keeping them interested and energetic. Um, but at the same time, it was so emotional all the time, so emotional. And just to see them, like, I was like, you can't see a kid try and not like soar, but also feel this little heartbreak because you know, like what's coming in life. And it's, it's sort of the paradox at the heart of the movie is like, you know, we have to, we have to all sign up for this collective self-deception, which is like, yeah, try hard. You can, you can get there. And the reality is life is going to bat you down. But what's the alternative is to like say there's no possibility and, and don't try and your life is worse. I don't know. And so it's that, that paradox of, of, um, of hope and encouragement. And it's, it's why, you know, I wrote the scene for that, the movie for that final scene where they're just all around in a huddle. And, and I, I was hoping that we had like gone on a journey so that when we're seeing those faces, we feel like we've been on it with them. But in a way there, he's telling them, you know, or wants to tell them, you know, do your best. And then he's got to tell them something and it's, and it's the kids who are nodding and encouraging him. You can do it. You know, you go on, you can do it. Like we get it. We got it. We understand. Like we know it's like, yeah, things suck. They're going to continue to suck, but we're going to, we're going to do it together. You know, we're going to be together. And I think that's, you know, that to me was like pretty much the reason I decided to make this movie. Wow. Um, I'm almost tempted to end there, but I want to ask that, that one of the other things I was fascinated by in the film and that we're speaking to in terms of this, the lengths you went to shoot in this location is the way in which it weaves together a document. You know, there's a very anthropological documentary element to the film. Um, 
that's interwoven with this beautifully crafted script that you put together. And going back to some of the things we've talked about, about the way you've lived your life, some of the other filmmaking that's happened. Um, <clears throat> I guess I'm, I'm curious about how that all fits together for you as a, as a filmmaker, because there's, let's face it, you know, there's easier ways to go about this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you could be shooting comedies in Bali. You could be, you know, there's other things that aren't that hard, but there's the worth and humanity that comes out of something like this. My experience with it, the nourishment I feel watching it is sort of a testament to the, the entirety of the craft that you're discussing and the heart that was put into this film. And I, I guess what I'm, I'm trying to hammer away at this question about the intersection between life and filmmaking and how both influence each other to result yeah, in well, like this and the authenticity that comes out. Yeah. Well, I mean, the reason I was living in Guatemala for the last eight years is I quit. I literally like found myself involved in those other projects you were talking about and asking myself, what am I doing here? Not being able to connect to the material, finding myself in situations where decisions were be ma being made that actively hurt the project for reasons that were arbitrary or political or personal. Maybe that's the reality and maybe I'm naive, but I, I, the only reason I, I, I didn't get into this for money, obviously I, you don't make money <laughs> like doing this. Um, uh, I, you know, I got into it because I wanted to, you know, I wanted to tell these kind of stories. I wanted to, Experiment, you know. I want. I, I, I on its best level, you know. Coppola talks about you have to always be in film school. You have to always be trying something, experimenting, and, and not knowing if it'll work out. And you have to have a few of those on every project. And that's how you keep it. You know, that's how you keep your pants on fire. You know, that's how it's interesting. And um, and you're learning, and and it, and you stay sort of alive and young. And, and by the way, to me, it was like what these kids didn't have, and I think it's what we lose as as adults is is the joy of discovery and, and, and the curiosity, ongoing active curiosity engagement with the world around you begets discovery and discovery is youth. It's life. It's, it's, you know, it's possibility, it's newness. And I think as we get older, we just sort of, eh, we close off. And, um, and I think there's something about that in the filmmaking process where if you treat it like a journey of discovery, it, it gives life, it gives you life. And, um, it certainly did for me, but I, I was, I was in a very dark place. Like I was actively avoiding phone calls from my agents. Like I just didn't want, like I wanted to lose my phone. Um, and, and I, and then, and then they fired me like they did. I, I, they successfully destroyed my career. Um, and then decided, um, I need to start over. I, I went to Guatemala to write, um, and really was just hoping to find the love again and thought, um, all these screenplays, TV show, movie, whatever I'm writing, uh, like uh, I wrote, a, a, uh, it took me 10 years to figure out how to break it, but Commercial Sam Fishing in Alaska TV show that I'm super psyched about. Um, but I thought, yeah, I'll probably never be in the film business again, so I'll, I'll write it as a screenplay because that's what I know how to do, but that will be the model, that will be the template for the novel that I'm going to have to turn into in order to like make use of this and ever get it out into the world. Um, and, and ironically, the writing, the process of just sitting down and exploring and trying, frankly, really different new stuff as a writer brought the joy back. It brought, it brought, like, I, I was like primed. And literally in that moment, my old friends, Ben O'Dell and Hang of the Face, call me 
and send me this article. And I get the article and I'm like, oh God, this is going to be some saccharine schmaltzy shit. And, and, but, but I should probably take the job cause it's a way back. And then I read the article and I cried like three times in the article. Like it got me. And, and I sat down I just said, what did it, what about this got me? And then is there a way that I can push against, you know, and, and if there's a criticism of the movie right now out, in the, out there in the world, I got taken down by the New York times for the second time in my life, uh, on Thursday on the club. Uh, yeah. Um, is that, you know, well, we've seen this movie before, uh, that, that, that it's following the form of the teacher movie. First of all, like there's too many teacher movies. There's been like seven or like maybe 10 ever really that you can think of. Uh, we, we were not, I mean, I guess some people are saying this about Marvel movies. Um, and actually at Sundance, I got really pissed that even that narrative was coming out a little bit. So I asked the interviewer, I wanted to ask me why I made this movie. And my answer was, well, you know, I know, I know that it's been done before, but I always said when I, when I really like can like reach the top of my career, I've just always wanted to make a superhero movie. <laughs> Cause that's what this is. It's a superhero movie, except he's real and he is saving the planet. Um, um, so yeah, that, that, um, full circle, you know, um, sort of experience of like, you know, and, and by the way, it happened in the making of the movie. And, and this was, I think the thing that sustained me the whole time. And it wasn't actually until Sundance, that I think what I had been doing really hit me. And somebody asked me the story about how I found Paloma. And I told that story of 3 a.m. And when I told the story, I started crying. And it was a full theater. And the guy still got the microphone in his hand. He says, what about that just made you emotional? Because like it's not Sundance. He still has the mic. Uh, and I said, and my answer wasn't perfect because it was just hitting me. I said, I, I found genius. But, but what, what, I, what I meant, what was the realization that was hitting me was that the making of the movie was the proof of the story that we were telling, which is to say that like talent is everywhere. Genius is everywhere. It's just not getting a chance. It's not getting recognized. And that, um, um, the making of this movie, I just, I just found an entire generation of genius actors, like ge truly extraordinary actors. And that's not just the kids. The kids are obviously, but Daniel Haddad, Chucho, um, had, it was a, was a comedian and a, and a magician. Um, and, um, you know, so the, 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 the idea that life imitates art, imitates life and, and, but to see it happening in your own life and to see it, you know, I, I was literally lost in the desert and this literally was, was a lifeline, you know, back, um, for me, it was like, it, you know, it's, it's deeply personal and I, and I, the reason I get pissed at the, the criticism of the plot, basically, first of all, it's like, it's a real story. This happened in this year. I can't change that. It is, it is, a, it, it is a, um, you know, a, I don't know if you call it feel good or inspired, but things do improve or there's something. Now I, I complicated that a lot, but really I think that your criticism is that, that we chose to t tell the story at all. And I think that that's, I think that's wrong. Like somehow, uh, and it, a story that inspires is somehow problematic or a story that, um, and, and oh, by the way, as, as a mechanism to try and get people to be inspired and enjoy this movie, uh, they've never had this story made for them in Mexico ever. Nothing like this. And by the way, it's hitting them like a hammer between the eyes. We're talking to the secretary of education there. The public is freaking out 
like it's a it's a crisis. This, they're literally this fucking corrupt country, and what it's doing to our kids, it's turning into a thing. And like our screen averages are going up there. Uh, we've been out uh, 10, 10 days or two weeks now, and I don't think this is true. But as of last night, we were told we were the highest grossing uh, Spanish language drama in Mexican history. Well, congratulations. Well. Uh, thank you so much for a, such a human and deeply inspiring film and an inspiring conversation and, and creating something that is a <clears throat> absolute um, strike against the kind of cynicism that you're, uh, that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it's a massive accomplishment and, um, and, uh, and, and just an amazing piece of work. And it was a real pleasure to be able to talk to you about well, it. Thank you. Th- thank you. And thank you for your, your great questions. And I, and I hope uh, we just met an hour ago or 45 minutes ago, but I hope that's the beginning of a beautiful relationship. I look forward to continuing <laughs> the conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America.